Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs from Muhammad. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please, practice excellent self and community care while listening. Do you find yourself drawn to native spirituality? Or perhaps you're weirded out by the way that some folks talk about Indian spirituality, especially if you've observed that ubiquitous practice of settlers, both white and POC, opportunistically using Native folks and indigenous rituals for their own personal healing and self-realization. Or maybe you're indigenous and enraged at the non-consensual extractive theft of caricatures of your practices by entitled outsiders who pressure their way into spaces for their own individual benefit. Maybe you're exhausted by superficial assumptions about the notion of spirituality and stereotypes of noble savages. If so, this episode is for you. Watch out, Focahontases and plastic medicine men. This is not Burning Man. Nope, there's no calling neo-colonial consumption transformative or enabling generalizations here. On today's episode of Feral Visions, we're delving into the romantic idea of Indian spirituality. We'll review the power dynamics through which it's been imagined and maintained within the dominant Eurocentric settler colonial U.S., We also cover the history of this settler notion of indigenous communities being more spiritual than everyone else. Indeed, our perception of, quote, spirituality, end quote, is but one lens through which we can understand how our minds have been colonized. We'll discuss the material, concrete implications of this generalization, as in, Who and what benefits from this notion and who and what doesn't in our current neo-colonial context? Join me as we bravely unlearn so that we can then shift our practices and decolonize this society. To aid us on this journey of learning and unlearning, I'm stoked to be in dialogue with Dr. David Shorter. Dr. David Shorter was raised in New Mexico and attended college both at Arizona State University 
and the University of California at Santa Cruz. He has a bachelor's degree in religious studies with a minor in women's studies and a master's degree in religious studies. After receiving his PhD in the history of consciousness, he went on to teach at Wesleyan University and then at Indiana University in Bloomington. Dr. Shorter is currently a professor in the Department of World Arts and Cultures slash Dance at UCLA. He teaches both undergraduate students in the World Arts and Cultures BA program and graduate students in the Culture and Performance MA and PhD program. In 2013, Dr. Shorter received the university's Distinguished Teaching Award. Dr. Shorter's work explores other than human relations and the history of science, particularly the social sciences. At UCLA, his course on aliens, psychics, and ghosts introduces students to the borderlands of science, exploring what gets to count as knowledge, what methods lead to truth, quote, end quote, and what are the power structures that enable some voices to count as factual and others as fictions. Dr. Shorter is the director of the Wiki for Indigenous Languages, a digital alternative for indigenous language revitalization by offering a language translator, wiktionary, games, and social media site to indigenous communities. Dr. Shorter's first book, We Will Dance Our Truth, evolves from decades of learning about indigenous lifeways, primarily among the Yoeme communities in northwestern Mexico. His research website, Vachiam Echa, Planting the Seeds, was the first ethnographic website built in collaboration with the Yoeme people from various pueblos. With support from the National Science Foundation, he's filmed tribal rituals pertaining to both collective and individual healing. He's also the director of the Archive of Healing, Ritual, and Transformation. Dr. David Shorter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to hear the show. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I first off just want to begin by sincerely thanking you for your scholarship and for the first and foremost attention to ethics that you so clearly centralize within the work that you do, particularly as an anthropologist. Um, so I just want to name that first and foremost, because of course, in that field, alas, that's not always been normative. So thank you uh, very much for the work that you do and how you do the work that you do. I very much appreciate you saying that. I understand the intention behind it, and it means a lot that you would start the program with that. For clarification, I have no training in anthropology and have never worked for an anthropology program, but of course I'm engaged in the practice of anthropology simply by doing field work with a Native community. So, yeah, thank you for saying that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and of all of your work, one piece in particular that I would love to get started dialoguing around today uh, is this piece in Frequencies uh, titled Indian. I would love to hear a little bit about what inspired you to write that piece, please. Sure. I, I felt after doing years of research with Native people and wanting to create a profession for myself as an academic, that I was always inside these social settings where people would ask me, what do you do? What do you work on? And you'd say, oh, I work with a native tribe or I work with a native tribe in Mexico or I you know, collaborate with native people. And the range of responses ended up falling into a general large category, which is that the listener would connect on the level of spirituality. They would almost always go to this level of, oh, Indians, I just think 
They've got such a great connection to the metaphysical world. Or they would say things like, oh, my, you know, I have an ancestor who had ghosts of Indians appear to her. Like it just somehow went into this weird context in which I rarely ever had anyone say, oh, I fight for Native struggles. Like it never went to a political, mm -hmm. actual actionable item that someone could do. It almost went to this ephemeral level. And because I'm so concerned in writing about grammar that helps us be activists rather than passive mm. viewers or listeners, I started thinking that something needed to be addressed in my own scholarship about this context. Because in fact, having a couple degrees in religious studies enabled me to see that there was a history there. There was a history of talking about native peoples in ways that accentuate their religiosity or their, for a term that I'm critical of later in my scholarship, spirituality. Mm -hmm. And that actually worked against native rights and politics. And so I started doing some research then on, well, what has been the effect of talking about native peoples only within the spiritual context? And just as I sort of feared, it has not worked out for their political benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you elaborate on that critique of the way that folks wield this concept of spirituality, please? It seems so deeply entangled within everything that you're talking about. Yes, the piece that you're looking at was formative. It was not necessarily aimed at an academic audience, which I think was fantastic because it enabled me to just get some stuff on a page first and foremost before I started researching the word spirituality, which later became an essay um, that I wrote for a collected volume of scholarly essays, and that essay is called Spirituality, and it's in a, a, a book edited by uh, the professor Frederick Hoxie. Um, to go back to that piece that you're asking about, what I was seeing was that na uh, non-native people have actually been taught to think of native people as primarily spiritual because of some interrelated histories. One is that when explorers and conquistadors and slave raiders were traveling around the world throughout the 16th and 17th centuries, they oftentimes were meeting people who had actually in practice relations with other than human persons. So this made the, the writing of the piece very difficult because at its base, I actually think what was going on here historically was a recognition that Native people were living their lives in ways that were not orientated towards simply positivist, materialist, capitalist modes of relating. So there's this great truth there at the, at the core there. But how to get to that core required perhaps unpacking some of the difficult histories that are problematic. So, for example, if you have Native people as constantly being represented as being in the world of spirits or religion, then in fact they get excluded from the world of materiality and then that really has a, a really negative effect on things that are material like health, like funding, like land rights. All those aspects that are incredibly material are sort of not on people's minds because they've already been told to think, you know, Indians, they really are only re related to us in the sense that they have something to offer us spiritually. This has a lot to do with romanticism, to be honest with you. It has to do with this white fantasy that Native people are either um, above us on some horizontal plane because they're closer to nature um, or they're closer to God because they aren't corrupted by capitalism. 
Um, that's a false representation because it then puts Indians on this plane that somehow they have the corner on the answers to the universe when in fact I don't think any religious worldview necessarily has that. I think there's a lot to gain, don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. by adopting indigenous ways of understanding environmental relations and non-hierarchical um, reciprocal relations. But the history of perhaps poets, writers, even musicians thinking of Indians as having um, the spiritual answers for white people, that's actually just serves white people. That just makes white people feel like they should adopt or appropriate native mm -hmm. ways of being. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you for that uh, exploration. Something that uh, is such a clear example to me of some of what you're speaking to is actually um, a to euphemize hard, really unfortunate experience that many of us had out at Standing Rock last year, which was seeing predominantly white settlers, but even to name names, POC settlers as well, uh, getting to the resistance camps and legitimately, I mean, within hours, going up to some random older person that they might presume to have been an elder and be like, okay, so I'm ready for my feather and or Indian name and or can I score some peyote? Literally as if, right their engagement in that space and in that moment was about their own personal self-actualization or self-realization. Uh, and I mean, just the levels of injustice, of disrespect um, that need to be unpacked there in an example such as that aren't readily apparent to so many no, people in the United doubt. States without right now, right? And there's a lot of POC self-critique, without a doubt, that's for just sure. waiting for us to engage. Mm -hmm. And I feel like what you've tapped into with that one example, anyone who's taught Native studies on in a classroom setting has experienced this before, where well-intended, progressive-minded individuals are excited to engage in Native worldviews, but then that native worldview or positionality becomes some sort of salve for their own personal history. And that becomes really problematic because then what you have is once again, the native community or native people being asked to do the work or the labor for someone else's issues, perhaps mm -hmm. even settler issues. Um, and that becomes really complex in the classroom. The fact that that was happening at Standing Rock happened, I think instantaneously. I saw people who were heading there and within a day, using it as a sort of um, social media opportunity yeah. for them to position themselves as being an ally. And I think that that serves a purpose that can be have some traction politically, but it also serves a very personal purpose to say, look at where I'm at and now look at how I'm gaining from this experience. I think the gain for something like that is incredibly political. I'm not saying that there's not immaterial or perhaps metaphysical um, benefits in one's journey to you know put your life on the line like that on the front line of a social activist cause on the other hand just as you say there have been scholars who have written in previous decades that if you want to have some sort of participation in native ceremony the very first thing you need to do is get engaged in native politics and i think that's a well-meaning thesis but unfortunately, it then gets adopted like, okay, I've done that now. Mm -hmm. How can I be a part of the religious community? And that's mm -hmm. obviously going to be something that takes a lot more time. Precisely. Uh, and opportunistic, right? I mean, were, were you exactly. only participating because you were hoping to be able to get in on something after the fact or what's really going on here, right? Exactly. Without a doubt. Without mm -hmm. a doubt. Mm-hmm. 
so you talk about in that essay um, this spirit-matter dichotomy um, or binary or polarity um, and how it relates to depictions of Native peoples, especially in settler contexts and settler texts. And I know that that concept um, might be unfamiliar to some listeners. So can you elaborate on that, please? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, we could we could go really far back to something like the debates between uh, Descartes and the church, which had sort of divvied up that the world was understandable in ways that can be what we would now call positivist or materialist, which means there's an object there that can be understood and that object can be sensed by your five senses. And those are the things that we will leave to science and the development of the universities really depends upon this method of understanding our world, which relies on the observable object. In fact, that's really the key word there, of objectivity and object oriented thinking. It also leads to things like objectification, which turns um, non things into things like the environment or meteorological events or human animal relations, those all become things within that lens of constantly looking for the object. And that was made possible over several hundreds of years, but we're still very much living inside that world. So that when I ask undergraduates and graduate students if they can remain conscious of the university experience as one that changes their value system, what I mean is can they avoid objectivating everything they see? while learning the scientific method or being inside higher education. The other side of that long history, though, is that there were um, aspects of living that then get pushed outside of the view of what science can ever tell us. And those non-things, we might say, were then called sort of religion or spirit or ephemerality. That is why for oftentimes when you look at specific beginnings of disciplines, including psychology, including sociology, including physics, you have these uh, original thinkers, oftentimes privileged white males, who had a very deep interest in the immaterial and they quickly learned that they needed to stop doing that research. They needed to focus on the materiality. Oftentimes, you have these disciplines like religious studies, which was one of the primary sort of core disciplines in the beginning of American Indian studies. And you have literature, which is at a key here, which is looking at fiction writing or poetry. Again, more ephemerality, things that are really about the subjective and the emotional world, doing some of the prelim preliminary work in Native studies. Now, why is that? It's because Native studies was never associated with something like science studies or the history of science and technology. That's why you have really great scholars now. I mean, coming to mind immediately is someone like um, Kim Talbert, who's really looking at the way the history of the science has excluded indigenous perspectives. And the reason why it's done that so easily and perhaps so casually is what do Indians have to offer the material objective study of the world? Indians belong in the immaterial. Now that has political ramifications, of course, because that means there's less legal research, there's less data um, being collected and interpreted across the university on aspects of indigenous materiality. And so that's why when we get to the issues of like land claims, many lawyers will take the route that they have to support indigenous rights based on the ephemeral aspect of, well, Indians believe that the land is important. Or it's much like a religion, you know, for, for white people we have churches, but Indians have the land. Those are really, I think, crappy arguments, to be yeah, honest with yeah. you. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. They, they totally make sense. And you can see why native people have even adopted some of that language because they look at white settlers 
and they think, okay, what do they value a lot? Oh, they seem to value God and religion. Okay, we'll adopt that language to speak about ourselves because then they'll understand how important these aspects of our world are. But in fact, <laughs> even though white settlers say that, we absolutely have turned our churches into corporations and we absolutely will sell you or um, put on the um, capitalist market things having to do with our religion. So mm -hmm. it wasn't it wasn't a great bargain to strike, but it is understandable. I can compassionately look at what previous generations of native leaders and uh, native voices were attempting to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, this is really um, evoking for me, Karen Ingalls, the elusive promise of indigenous development, rights, culture, strategy. So exactly right, that assertion that she's making that's so on point um, and tragic in part, if you ask Absolutely. me, right, sort of surveying in the past few decades, this imperative to utilizing what gets called, right, culture-based strategies globally for advocacy, um, which how often translates to, and there's something that is... Um, so extractive and exploitative, and you want to talk about objectifying about this um, imperative to sing a little song and do a little dance and maybe yeah. write, and the, this is articulated into all the spaces as opposed to just write. Uh, That's right advocating for and or decolonizing, right, using all of the other means. So then there's this sort of after effect of that um, that you see play out with value judgments against, right, moves towards decolonization that do not, right, utilize those same kinds of strategies. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And also, I think that it puts people like myself who um, do not identify as, identi as indigenous in a very difficult situation because Ingle's work is incredibly prescient and salient for this yeah, conversation. Yeah. I'm glad you raised it. Mm -hmm. um, there are there are really some fantastic Native scholars doing this work and um, Native in, uh, Indigenous women, I would say. I just want to sort of highlight that I'm one of many voices. And in mm -hmm. fact, I probably shouldn't even be highlighted as one of the primary ones. It's just that my training in religious studies and my critiques of objectivity which were such a, a base of my research that led to my um, book on We Will Dance Our Truth with the tribe in Mexico, the Yoame people, At really undergirding most of my research was this notion to not ever be objectivist and to pay attention to the ways that their language and their rituals are asserting a very um, intersubjective as opposed to materialist ways of, of moving in the world. The result of that research has then led me to then I think I think put myself in a in a a position that needs to be forthright communicated about, which is that as a non-indigenous person, what my work can be seen as doing is critiquing indigenous positions that have been laid out based on that immaterial aspect of, well, our land is sacred, and there's such a thing as sacred geography, and there are ways of being that are holy. And um, land is like God to us. Actually, these are all really dangerous and problematic adoptions of Judeo-Christian hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And as a non-Indigenous person, I never want to be perceived as someone who's critiquing an Indigenous pers perspective. On the other hand, to do really critical scholarship means asking how various generations have been put in a position to utilize certain languages just so that they could have some traction. Anna Singh, a, a professor at UC Santa Cruz, called these um, genre conventions, which is that indigenous people have learned, have ne needed to learn ways of speaking that built them an audience. 
And they had to do this, quite frankly, in response to things like the United Nations Working Group for Indigenous People, mm -hmm. which realized that they got traction on an international, international level if they adopted the language of sort of things like human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, which is itself very human-centric. And at this point, we're now asking what's beyond that in um, scholarship. Mm -hmm. So I guess I just wanted to pause for a moment and say, as a non-Indigenous person, I don't want to be perceived as willy-nilly critiquing what Native leaders or voices are doing. On the other hand, I do want to raise the specter of internal colonization, which mm -hmm. is that tribes have attempted to speak to a patriarchal um, uh, government a condition through settler colonialism and in the mode of doing so have sometimes replicated that patriarchy, that nepotism, um, that very hierarchical notion of non-representative government and non-equality that takes place inside, for example, the U.S. political system. And because of that, I think we have to ask how have tribal governments themselves um, perhaps um, been put in a position that now we can deconstruct those and ask whether those are really serving the people. And and this is only one of, there are many things that we could then go down a tangent for, like, you know, gay marriage and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. I think at this point, instead of going down those, you know, LGBT right questions within tribes, let's just stay on the one about spirit and matter. They have adopted the language of sacred geography. They have adopted the language of um, holy and worship and and sometimes these terms from religion which exclude the material reality of what I was seeing in tribal context. So I would go to, uh, for example, I spent uh, several summers with a great friend um, going up once in a while to the uh, Diné Reservation, the Navajo Reservation, um, and I would hang out a lot with her father and he would teach me really simple things, th things I would never write about. I just This was on a personal level. Um, you know, how to pick sage or how to greet the sun um, how to find yourself inside a, a, a place among the trees and open, self, open, open yourself up to learning a language that's not a human language. I mean, really amazing opportunities that I've had in my life. Thank you to the Yazi family. But one of the things that really became clear there is that these are all very material. They're about, <laughs> they're about paying attention to the direction the plant is growing, the, the shade of the bark on the tree, these are not immaterial spiritual things that take place. They require you to be participating in your environment. Um, care for animals, care for plants. These are not immaterial things. These are, these are things you need to do with your body. You actually need to put them in practice. And I was starting to recognize as a person who at the time was in religious studies that the word spiritual wasn't really the right word for these activities. And I, I tell a story inside that piece that you referred to at the beginning called Indian, where my um, advisor, who's now passed on with respect to him, Professor Ken Morrison, he was really working on the main um, land, Indian land came, claim case back in the 70s. And he was working with uh, uh, lots of people up there. But there was a Passamaquoddy woman who explained to him why they really needed to fight the, the state on this issue so they could get back this particular mountain and he and he was trying to compile and take notes from her and say well you know why is this mountain important and she was saying well this this mountain is the only place we can do this one ceremony the ceremony is not allowed in other places it has to take place at the base of this mountain on the eastern side and it's through that ceremony that we find our names for our children um through that ceremony and if we can't do that ceremony on the base of that mountain because we've lost you know rights to be on that space then how are we going to name our children? 
And she had throughout the entire time been saying that the argument needed to be one based on spirituality. And, and I think he, he woke up and reminded her, these aren't spiritual things. These are really practical. These are the naming of your children. These are dances that are performed in a specific geographic location. And all of that gets clouded by the word spiritual. Because if you talk to people who are perhaps Judeo-Christian or even evangelical about their spiritual life, they won't talk about their income. They won't talk about necessarily, you know, the food they put on the table or things like health, you know. I think this is where I go with my article. If we don't pay attention to Indian materiality or indigenous materiality, then we lose sight of actual lives, the, the way that indigenous people lost more life in some of the wars, like the Korean and the Vietnam War, than other minority groups. If we, if we don't talk about materiality, we sometimes lose sight that indigenous people are suffering from diabetes more than any other minority group in the world as well. That's a very material, health-related thing. If we don't talk about materiality, then we're not talking about Indian land claims. And so it enables, in some ways, feeds someone saying, oh, Indians, I just, I love Santa Fe and Sedona, and I go there all the time <laughs> to be inside those vortexes or whatever they are. <laughs> And, it, and it, uh, I sort of play with this in that article where I sort of have found myself responding, uh, yeah, what are you doing for the Native people where you live right now? Like, how are mm -hmm. you helping missing Indigenous women get found and right. bringing political attention to that? Because that's pertinent and material. Mm -hmm. That's I'm not saying it doesn't have a metaphysical or non-material component in the world, but let's just for a moment realign what the priorities are for actual indigenous people right now. It's not your adoption or appropriation of their spirituality. It's your building an ally relationship for their materiality. And mm -hmm. I, I think one precedes the other when it comes to issues of cross-cultural engagement. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. I also have, particularly in teaching uh, in various parts of California, including the Bay oh, Area quite recently, oh, oh yes, uh, right. Area, uh, sure. Uh, it is in some way sort of uh, ground zero for settlers that may have, say, bought an alleged right admissions to a so-called sweat lodge from a hippie, but that don't know the name of the tribe whose land they're occupying. So this kind of right exactly. dynamic that you're speaking to, uh, and particularly in this moment in time where some folks are sort of at the precipice of beginning to realize that perhaps... Uh, social justice rhetoric actually is incommensurate with decolonization, uh, that maybe there, you know, are some sort of problematics to sit with exactly. and reflect upon quite carefully around all of that. Exactly. Um, to if unpack could, some of that, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're on the verge of, of, of sort of saying it, I, I actually want to create a space in this conversation to say that I have not in my work, in that piece that you're referring to, or in my larger piece of spirituality, attempted to exclude off of the table the consideration that there are deeply emotional, metaphysical, immaterial aspects to life. I myself have mm -hmm. a private Reiki practice. Sure. I myself <laughs> am teaching constantly about how we need to decolonize the sciences, particularly in terms of method and how it's objectivist. Mm -hmm. I recognize that there's more at play in the world, things that we might not see, things like ancestral relations, things like human-animal relations. I just simply want to put the brakes on non-Indigenous people rushing to those first and foremost as their attachment to how to engage Indigenous communities, because I think mm -hmm. that itself is problematic. Then, mm -hmm. once you work to decolonize perhaps your desire, why do you want to help Indian people, mm -hmm. 
decolonize your attachment to this notion that of all the aspects of indigenous community you should be related to, it's their, it's their religiosity. That's a very odd thing. I mean, mm-hmm. as a person who, without a doubt, has been part of, of multiple indigenous ceremonies, it has always been a surprise to me because it was never my goal to get in there and do that. My goal was to go in and talk about how can we get you more land rights? How can we create an argument that will empower attorneys and lawyers to fight for your sovereignty, your geographic sovereignty, without relying on things like claims of sacrality? How about we rely on claims of you've actually had an active, practical, logical relation with this environment? that has existed longer than any other human on this continent that we know of. And let's just start there as the actual legal premise, that the relations are not some sort of metaphysical and material relations. They are practical, they are logical. One might say they are rational, even if they are not objectivist. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, And on that front, I mean, there's so much that we could get into here to be sure, but uh, there seems to be uh, so much sort of bypassing to invoke one language when it comes to uh, settlers, especially, say, folks racialized as white that have so much work to potentially be done within their own ancestry in the name of healing and the name of returning to balance. So also to be curious around, this is something I do with my students on a regular basis, inviting attention to what else, right, is laden within that desire Um, And just naming also how socially constructed these desires are. Um, So what are all of the other possibilities that are being foreclosed if you have this right sort of rapacious um, yearning in someone else's community to get in on something potentially to name it non-consensually that you weren't invited into to begin with uh, at the expense of um, very real work, especially for white folks, um, but for all settlers to check in around what needs resolving or attending to ancestrally always already, right? Say that idea right. of right attending to what's already present regardless of or prior to uh, interjecting any of these additional variables into the equation, so to speak, that exactly. can just right be so fraught with so many other power dynamics as well when it's like, you know, I'm sure there could be plenty of dismantling of white supremacy to be done if only you were to, instead of engage in this sort of focahontas, pretendian, exactly. plastic exactly. medicine men exotification, uh, exactly. quite often eroticizing as well, um, getting clear about, again, hang on, back to basics, why are you, what again, getting to the root of um, what the sort of facets of that socially constructed desire are to begin with? Without a doubt. So what you're doing there, which I think is really great, I hope you're doing this with um, the, the classes that you teach and the people that you're engaged with, is that you're helping understand that there's this thing called this motivation and this attraction. And that's the stuff that I want to say, perhaps that exists. I don't know how I have, if I, if, you know, there are people in the world who have native ancestors talking to them from the other side. That's all fine and dandy. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. Sure. I'm not saying, you know, for all I know, and I've told Kim Talbear this, I think if that world exists, our ancestors are probably laughing at how much we put on race and how much we think that's a thing. On the other hand, one can feel that energy, that compulsion, that motivation without losing sight of the fact that you're actually in a specific historic context right now. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I mean, there's a lot of ways that this plays out. If I can just be biographical, I started my path to do native studies in 1992. 
Um, at the time, you would have to search pretty hard to find the one native person on campus. Maybe there might be two, and they might not be in your discipline or your sort of field of study. In that time, since 1992 to 2017, there has been the creation of the Native American Indigenous Studies Association. There are literally mm -hmm. professional organizations and journals. Mm -hmm. I can look across my campus and see over half a dozen, I think maybe even 14 or 18 Native faculty members teaching in a wide variety of disciplines. So for me, I had always thought this is a really great profession that is doing really important work. And then as I got more up the ladder, I've recognized it was politically more important for me to pull back my taking of a voice mm -hmm. because there started to be native voices around me who could do that work and who were doing it pretty well to the point that I was thinking, you know what? This is the person who they need to talk to. This is the person who should be a guest lecturer. And the result of that is, is that that doesn't mean I have less motivation for native studies. It means that I've just stopped reaching for the mic as much mm -hmm. because that was the thing I started seeing around me that became problematic was that people who have been allies and working for Native struggles for a long time, at the same time, weren't then letting Native people start being on the front line and the spokespeople for those issues. I think that there's work to be done. And this, I was actually, you brought up peyote before, I was actually um, a participant of the Native American church for about three or four years when I was in college. And I never, ever write about this. This is this is my life. It's not my research. It was a very instrumental aspect to who I am. And um, when I started going there to the NAC meetings, it became really clear that what they needed help doing was cutting wood the mm -hmm. five days before the ceremony. Mm -hmm. And so I started recognizing through this almost teaching me a method of doing how to do research as a non-indigenous person that sometimes what needs to be done is the service or the labor aspect not the in front of the camera work if mm -hmm. that makes any sense Absolutely. and that's what i was seeing with the xl pipeline and some of the uh political fights like the occupy movement i was seeing people say oh my gosh look at me you know we're you know doing the native work here and i'd be like well actually you have work to do, but why don't you let the native people <laughs> camera right now or speak? This is this gets a little bit more to the material as aspect of it as well, which is that there is material practical work to be done. And mm -hmm. for academics, it exists oftentimes in the world of scholarly engagement. But as you know very well from your work, it also exists for artists and mm -hmm. activists mm -hmm. and the wide range of there's a lot of fronts to be fighting on right now, mm -hmm. uh, particularly within this regime of our current political system in the U.S. and to a certain extent in Canada. I mean, you have a you have in Canada a leader who uses a lot of lip service for native rights and um, but in action, you don't really see it there yet. Maybe maybe it's forthcoming. But anyway, the whole point of that is there's a lot of work to be done. Um, what doesn't need to be done is some sort of adoption or connection to indigenous spirituality. I mean, mm -hmm. that that might come because of larger questions about the cosmos that I can't answer and shouldn't answer. But it's not because you earned it or deserved it by putting mm -hmm. in some labor for Native rights. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, Trudell is such a great example of this more sort of benevolent, so to speak, right? Settler colonial mentality. So whether it's... Um, rocking the Haida tattoo because you're so reverential uh, and just really, you know, 
an invitation right. to pause, to put it mildly, and yes. to really begin to examine what precisely does that mean? Who asked you to do that and on behalf of whom and as opposed to what and again, what other possibilities are not coming to fruition that could be much more substantively meaningful in terms of your getting clear about your positionality and the power yeah. dynamics imbricated within latent within your being in a consumptive sort of appropriative extractive place to be doing that to begin with. Without a doubt. And yeah. I see it inside the hipster community in Los Angeles all the mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. I'm able to see these people and, you know, have a drink with them and realize that's a really good hearted person. That person wants to do good in the world. Mm -hmm. But what they've done is they've adopted some sort of very uneducated symbology yeah. to wear on their T-shirts or to purchase in the market economy. And I hate to say it to even use tattoos. Um, it's a really it's a really. I mean, present uh, um, uh, subject. I was very fortunate. I, I had this radical notion when I was 20 of a tattoo that was based on a, um, a, a Navajo sand painting. And my great friend at the time, Tarjean Yazi, um, the Navajo fam family that I mentioned before, she took me to a, a Navajo elder and said, could you just tell her what your idea was? And I, <laughs> I told her what my idea was, and, and Sita Benali was her name. She said, you know, we need to sort of step back and think about the differences between what you call a symbol and what we call a symbol. Mm. Since your language is representative, you represent reality with these words. Our language is generative, so we're creating reality. So art for us is not the representation of mm. thing. Mm. It actually generates and then calls that being into presence. Mm -hmm. And that design is a being, a person That's that you have right. no relationship with, and now you're going to put you. it on your arm or your Thank back. You. Okay. you have any idea what that, what the power of that is. And I was sort of like so lucky to have someone shepherd me to someone who could teach me in a compassionate way. And it's really unfortunate because I see people around me all the time. And I don't just mean 20-year-olds. I mean 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds. Oh, yeah. People really are well-intended who will come to my office and say, I would love to work with you because I'm very interested in, and then they drop that $10 million word, shamanism. Or right. I'm Thank really you. interested into, I'm really interested in, in native ceremony. And then, like you just said minutes ago, you'll, you'll ask them a few questions. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Where have you been around here? And you recognize they have no idea that the Tongva have, Thank you, you know, things to do yeah. a mile away from campus. Mm -hmm. Or they have no idea that, you know, there's Kumavai people walking around on this campus with them. They, they've associated with something in the past that's behind us. Mm -hmm. And I think that drink draws us full circle back to the beginning of this conversation where no matter how good the intentions are, they don't really have a notion of the context that they're currently in, which makes why, why it's so important to do have native studies on campuses. And I don't mean necessarily within, within ethnic studies. I mean native right. studies mm -hmm. departments mm -hmm. campuses mm -hmm. are bringing this conversation to a table it's happening really fruitfully in a proactive way in Canada, I think, right now. You have so many great Native Studies programs up there. Here in the U.S., we've seen in the last five years, particularly at places like Illinois, the decimation of those programs, programs that were really doing that frontline right. difficult work. And then you see some sort of um, right-wing agenda in place among the university administrators to, to squelch it. Mm -hmm. um, so... I, I think that the conversation that you're engendering in this podcast is really important. I don't actually see it often. Yeah. I don't see a lot of people working in the very difficult, you might want to say the sort of finer frequencies that we're on right now, which is 
really well-intended people kind of doing problematic work and sometimes native people themselves falling into, I mean, this is all a very complex conversation. Mm -hmm, right. Uh, and speaks to the ways that we've been differentially uh, internally colonized, right? Um, the need for a very sort of disparate, quite literal decolonizing of the mind as interconnected with all of the things, which is going to look different in all of our communities. And there might be some connections and similarities, of course. Right. There was this great, you just, you just hit on something that was really key about this, I think, 1992 movie called White Shamans in Plastic Medicine and that right. um, went Austin with Dan Hart. Mm -hmm. It's in some ways dated. It's, it's very, in some ways, um, polar, like it really positions one voice against another and has a monolithic notion of what, you know, a native response might be. All of that said, it does it to great effect and essentially taps into this really important thing that you just pointed um, out, which is that at the base of this, there actually really is a, a disparity among people to have intersubjective relations. People do have a sense that they're missing something, that objectivism and positivism and capitalism aren't helping. In fact, they might actually be deteriorating our entire you know, environment that we live in and that we can thrive in as a people that it's not serving how we raise children, it's not serving how we think of uh, ability slash disability and, and differentiation among our community members. All of that stuff is real. That's a real sense of lack, a real hope that there's something more. And there's also this real ethnographic literature that suggests indigenous communities mostly had ways that operated and worked differently. And perhaps to use some new age terms, more harmoniously or at least more intersubjectively. So there really is this connection that could be made, but it has to be done so carefully and it has to be done in such a way that it doesn't lead students to immediately then appropriate mm -hmm. native ways of thinking or being in the world that are at the expense of the hard work of native people to conserve those over the generations of colonization. So the one aspect that a lot of non-native people want from native people is the part that they were actually punished for. Things like ceremony, things like dance. Um, this interest in native language I think is a little different. I actually think more people should be learning native languages regardless of how you affiliate yourself. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to ceremony and ritual, stories and worldview, that sort of stuff. I mean, native people died for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. That's the thing you want. That seems, that seems really decontextual at this point, you know? Mm -hmm, right. Precisely. And that's the thing is in a neo-colonial context, having to name that context uh, that any of these actions are situated within, what does it mean for someone that, uh, in that context might have all of the power and privilege accorded to them to buy into this same. To me, it's increasingly important to just name with clarity the sort of extractive mentality that whether it is right, um, pulling fossil fuel up from beneath the earth's surface and or taking non-consensually from a community that is not yours. It's that same consumptive, hyper-individualistic mentality that's at the bedrock of U.S. culture, just manifested in different realms. Right. Uh, and so checking that, right, and particularly amidst, right, so right. we're in this neo-colonial context where we each have a sort of slightly differential praxis for what it might mean to really be taking seriously um, what kind of decolonial praxis we could be engaging in um, for folks to be 
copying out of their ancestral, their place-based, the responsibilities that are always already present within their social location to be uh, engaging voluntarily in some of these kinds of exchanges. Um, you know, especially say for some of my students that are racialized as white, I have to ask, but also say some of my students that are racialized as black that have been, right, are descendants of folks that were forcibly brought over through the transatlantic slave trade. Um, what are right. the stories of your, to invoke this vexed language, sacred or spiritual traditions to pass on to your future generations? Uh, right. So there is so much to get into there in terms of the forms of right obfuscation of bypassing that are taking place that have to be situated within that context that you're speaking to that is indeed still a neo-colonial one right absolutely absolutely i think you're i think you've used such a key word there which is extractive i've yeah. my project is the is this thing called the um um the archive of healing ritual and transformation which is really looking at a non-objective way to think about healing practices and so it's not necessarily native studies anymore, but it's very, I mean, native people obviously have very non-objective ways of thinking about healing. So without a doubt, my 20 some years in native studies is helping me do this, this next project. On the other hand, one of the things that is in some ways absolutely similar to native studies is the thing you just picked up upon, which is extracted. We have a long history of people going out to native communities, learning their care of plants and use of plants, and then going and getting a patent to turn that exact same approach yep. to a way to a means of amassing wealth for a corporation or for a small group of shareholders, when in fact that knowledge was cared for, protected, those active intersubjective relations are maintained by perhaps native people. And I just want to expand it now. That notion of who that affects, if we think that it only affects negatively one group of people, we're we're missing the big picture here. And this is where I think that you and I are in this conversation unpacking multiple levels. There's this other level, which is that the generation that I'm currently teaching, which is ages 17 to 22, I would say, for undergraduates, also lives in a world in which music should be, you know, drawn from whatever country you need to, and a, an artist can wear a bindi da or wear, wear a headdress. And it's all just play and it's all art and mm -hmm. all art is, is, is free to cut and paste and mix and match. And the result of it is, is that we've lost a sense that perhaps communities are going to suffer if, in fact, everything is constantly extracted from them, including their rights of control of representation. They can't even control the way that they're represented because, as you pointed out, the power differential is so great. It's not just that as a person with a PhD who could find a publisher fairly easy these days, it's not just that I could misrepresent a native person. It's that I then have this privilege and power to take that misrepresentation and move it around the world so quickly. So you see people like the Kardashians or Pepsi making a faux pas in some moment of being on a set in Hollywood it's their power that enables them to take that misstep or the mistake, and it also gets distributed around the world within a minute. Within, it's like it's just on the web, and it's just, bam, everywhere. So because of the interconnectedness and the compression of space and time at this particular moment, it makes all the mistakes you and I talked about actually have a higher impact, which makes them more necessary to think through anyone who wants to be conscientious about this type of cross-cultural ally building. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, and it ties in so deftly with what you were speaking to earlier about how so often folks um, are inadvertently forced or pressured into 
um, playing up to the stereotypes that outsiders have of whether it is themselves and or their cosmologies and or their worldviews or any aspect of their group or collective identity. And right. so that's so insidious also, um, particularly right with the age of technology that we're currently saturated in, inundated within, because when, right, so, so many different phrases would articulate, right, lies are as pervasive as they can yeah. be, or misinformation, yeah. disinformation saturates the cultural water that we're wading in, uh, it can be seemingly impossible for folks to wage any kind of counter narrative actually rooted in who they are or self-referentially how they or their family or communities understand their cultures. Um, and right. additionally, then, I mean, right, we've got to invoke, say, notions of hegemony here, right? Or when an oppressor right. class, so to speak, has, that's part of the nature of oppression and hegemony, gets to name, right, the dominant terms of the debate, I'll let you know who you are and how that's I right. understand your worth and what's interesting about you. So then that's we right. have youth, right? We have people in all of these communities um, that don't have any semblance of agency or autonomy in terms of self-articulating, um, because we've been so hustled by right this sort of hyper-saturated media environment that we happen to be in, where so many right um, outsiders narrativizing of who we are supposed to be dominate. Absolutely, I I can't help but bring this right home directly to what you're doing right now with this podcast because. The ability to control the dissemination of information is something that we thought with technology would be democratized. And I was very fortunate in graduate school to have as an advisor, um, Angela Davis, who helped us um, understand the work of Herbert Marcuse, mm. who at one point theorized that there would be these revolutions that take place in which you will see society recognize the issue about racial difference and it would take the form of some sort of unifying of, of, of civil rights. And that there would be this um, upheaval in terms of women's rights and gender and in terms of, uh, you know, sexuality and sexual desire. And he talked about one of the phases as being this technological revolution that would really help people who were resisting government control to um, take a stand within that government and have a larger voice in it. And I think for the first 15, 20 years of the technological revolution, when we saw the advancement of email and the internet, that we thought that it might be happening. Well, in the current debate this week about net neutrality that's taking place in the US, we see that in fact, the government has learned that they are going to need to control things like the dissemination of information through websites, through um, the ability for people to open up their smartphone and get information about what's going on in the globe. And inside my own work, which has, cr I've created three digital projects, uh, indigenous language revitalization website and a uh, website that disseminates a, a documentary film in UMA language. And anyway, the point being is that as I was paying attention to how technology was working in this Pueblo in Mexico of indigenous community members, I noticed that they never really had landline telephones. Um, a lot of people never have, have had TVs. They live in mud thatched houses or, um, tin houses with some brick. But now, 2017, everyone has a smartphone. And that smartphone gets them connected to the internet instantaneously, cheaper than it was ever um, to make a phone call, for example, to the United States. Which means that they can access things like your podcast. Like, you, what you're doing in a podcast helps have this conversation. Just 
two people throwing ideas back can be a fertile ground, like a garden, in which if maybe a seed lands or a seed lands over here, or a seed, it doesn't even matter what we're planting. If some of these seeds land and they help nourish a conversation that can take place among people who are actually interested in advancing the conversation, people who want to be allies, then you've done a really good job as a gardener. You know, you've done your work for the day by going out there and simply having this podcast. So just as you started by thanking me, I really want to just throw it back right at you and say, this conversation has been incredibly energizing for me, mm. but it's also a really sign of the the small steps that can make a big impact. And I think you just having this conversation, this podcast is one of those. Oh, it's so kind of you to say thank you for that. Uh, yeah, my mother was a gardener. So actually the tagline oh, really? of my freedom school is pulling weeds and planting seeds, just like my mama taught me. Oh, <laughs> so that's well, definitely that's what we're fantastic. doing. Well, right. she's proud, I have no doubt. Thank you. Uh, well, you just spoke to um, three of your digital projects. I'd be remiss to not just uh, ask you to describe some of the work that you do with the Yoemi, please. Um, and I would, uh, to the extent that you're down, also love to hear you speak to um, some of the sort of, to make it plain, corrective nature of some of the work that you're doing. So if you could also sort of situate your sharing some of the work that you do with rep misrepresentations um, sure. formerly of their work, I think that might be really important for our listeners to understand a little bit more about contextually. Sure. I had at the um, very outset of my um, training had a notion, this is going to be very, very contentious, um, if not heretical to some of your listeners, but uh -huh. I had a disagreement with Audre Lorde. <laughs> Go there. <laughs> where she says uh -huh. that the tools of the master's house can never <laughs> take down the house. Uh -huh. I have a different opinion and it's fueled 27 years of work in the academic world that I was going to use academia to decolonize the university mm -hmm. and decolonize the classroom, which according to Audre Lorde, writing academically was never going to take down academics, but I, I disagree. So what I was reading when I was reading ethno histories, which are historical accounts of the past inside native communities, particularly about colonization, I was noticing that well-meaning, you know, probably liberal progressive historians were using all this categorical language from religious studies and Judeo-Christianity to make sense of indigenous worldviews. And in fact, their method of studying, which is mostly archival and listening to Spanish historians reports about these contexts, were obviously one sided and perhaps misguided. The reason why they were doing that is they didn't think that you could have accurate context being given by contemporary native people about something that happened in the 16th or 17th century. And I disagreed. I thought that native logic and perception was absolutely still attainable, not only through oral tradition, but through ritual logic. And that what we would have to learn how to do is study performance, like you would study writing, try to understand that humans are writing on the land with their body all the time, whenever they do ceremony, dance, um, even pilgrimages. Um, and so I think you can see pretty quickly why it was important for me to break out of an objectivist model, because writing as an object was to me one way of knowing it's useful for things like antibiotics, which I love, and you know some notions of physics and sciences. I really think objectivity can be very useful. It's one way of knowing, and it's not necessarily the best, and it's not necessarily the most reliable. 
So indigenous people had to strategize in ways that didn't leave a trace, a residue, a thing, because they had saw how corrupt that process could be. Non-native people would simply take it and ruin it. That's what happened across Mexico and Latin America is that when the colonizers showed up, they burnt things. They got rid of things, mm-hmm. including um, intersubjective beings that had statue form inside the households, including writing. I mean, it wasn't that native people didn't write. It's that a lot of that writing didn't survive what happened after the colonizers showed up. Also, when they did write, as I learned in my research, they chose not to write everything because they thought some of the best stuff you don't write down, some of the most important stuff you don't write. So what I did is I wrote a very, I attempted to write a straightforward history using archival sources and other scholars for three chapters. And then I stopped and said, now let's talk a minute a little bit about this objective focus on writing. What would it mean to disrupt that notion and look at non-written sources? And then I write essentially another three chapters looking at that exact same history from a UMA perspective just by looking at their ritual and their own stories. And the result is, is that I feel that that laid the groundwork for the future work, which is that I had to ask myself, how was the work that I was doing contributing to a way that a UMA person could look at the work and recognize themselves in it? So the very next thing I did is I created a website about my research in Yoeme, which made me have to really deal with um, ways of representation and notions of aesthetics and symbol and graphic design and digital um, publishing, all from an indigenous context, because I wanted Yoeme people, including Yoeme kids, to look at this website and be attracted to it because it was the very first time they were going to see their own language on the internet. It was going to be the very first time that they had a role in actually creating that site. And what it led is to so many learning uh, moments for me where I recognized history doesn't happen linear, like a timeline for them. They wanted it to grow upward like a plant. They wanted, you know, the screens to change by flowers blooming because for them flowers were this notion of giving and grace and sacrifice, all these things that I, I, I'm sort of using English terms for that don't really get at, but it led to fruitful conversations with them. And it slowly over the first seven years taught me that so much of indigenous worldview and intersubjective relations is built into the literal grammar of the language. So after taking three courses, um, college courses in UMA, um, I created the Wiki for Indigenous Languages, which um, is a uh, web-based language revitalization website. It's primarily in UMA. There's a, a Quechua uh, version um, in the works, and it's open for any native community to adopt as a way of keeping their language alive. There are many options up there. I don't want to say mine's the best one by any means. I think that there's multiple ways that one could look at this. Mine's an open source way that I wanted to create something that focused on language because language became really important in my understanding of how native people can remain conscientious and perhaps embodied in intersubjective relations. I think it's actually linguistically. After that project was finished, I started doing these series of articles on themes that really interested me. Because I apprenticed with a native um, healer in my last four years of field work, I wrote a piece about healing and about how it was important to decolonize our sexuality because this notion of, of, of healing power was very much attached in the UMA context to the healer's sexuality and a thought in a way that just sort of opened my mind to think, wow, what would it mean to decolonize sexual desire 
and our notions of categorical and objective thinking about sexual identity. So I, I did a piece on that. I did a piece on spirituality. I did a piece on indigenous cartography and geography, sort of like thematics that I'd been wrestling with for a while. Um, then I made a film in UMA uh, because I wanted to see what it would mean to make a documentary that was inside the indigenous language, as well as in Spanish, as well as in English, and not translate things. Because I felt like there was so much violence done through the process of translation that I just wanted to experiment in film form with this documentary about this one ritual in which I am the only person to have ever filmed it because my main collaborator of 22 years, his family said, you should film this ritual since he worked with you for so long. Why don't you also film his death, just as he his ceremony, just as he enabled you to film his life? And it was sort of my last piece of field work, which is that I was going down there. My longtime collaborator had passed away um, uh, in Yoema. You would actually say his name, Tuka'u, which at the end means he's passed and we're saying his name with respect. So Guillermo Tuka'u, I, I was able to film the death ceremony for him. But then when I made that film and sent it out to film festivals, it was constantly rejected. People were just like, well, we can't show a film that's not translated because it's not in English. And I was able to then say, as a means to, again, answer your question about how does the work that I do respond to perhaps counter positions. One is that I just don't actually think you should translate stuff. I mean, people are like, well, what word do you want us to use if it's not holy? I don't know. How about using the word in the native language they use? Because I guarantee you it's not the word holy, which mm -hmm. is English. Mm -hmm. Well, what am I supposed to use instead of spiritual? <laughs> I don't know. Why don't you use the, <laughs> why don't you use the Lakota word? <laughs> because are we so attached to using English as a means to communicate indigenous worldviews when those worldviews are embodied and engendered in the indigenous words? Mm -hmm. They're not engendered inside the English words. So mm -hmm. I'm constantly struggling with my students who are like, well, then how would I do this work? I'm like, well, then you're going to have to learn some of the native language, aren't you? I mean, that's kind of the key to that kind of research. Um, and then something very interesting happened, which I've really wrestled with how I would ever talk about it publicly. And I think that your conversation today with me, particularly the first 20 minutes is really insightful for this. My long-term collaborator who did not pass away, I really had two, one passed away and one who's still very much alive. Um, he was sort of the person who very much put the work in my hands and invited me to do the research with him. He invited me to go down with him and make personal context. Um, he was a governor of a Pueblo. He wrote three of the dictionaries. I mean, he's, a, he's very much a very I, I know the word is problematic to say traditional, but let's just say he was raised in a very aboriginal um, family. Uh, he and I had really been doing this work on UMA language and on pre-contact, pre-European um, notions of nature-human relations or what that concept of nature means. And we were both informed in 2013 that we had to stop saying we work in any way with the tribe because they didn't, the tribal officials didn't actually like our work. I mean, the tribal officials were hoping to open a golf course and a conference center and a casino. They wanted more land rights in which those land rights were really going to be granted to them by the state if they played along with um, very US governmental notions of land and human land relations. And they saw our work as being a hindrance to that. And so that put me in a really difficult position because I have always at a native, as a native studies scholar said, I would do this work as long as I'm working collaboratively with native communities, 
because I never want to speak about a community. I always want to speak with them if that's possible. So I really appreciate the invitation for this podcast, but I don't actually actively consider myself as a person who's doing anthropological or field-based research with a native community right now. I still have very active relations with other indigenous scholars. We read each other's work. I still do peer review for the native studies journals, but I do not speak in any way about UMA research at this point, though I'm still very proud of the 23 years of work I did with that community. And I have no doubt at some point there will be other relations with native communities. Right now I'm working with healers and um, knowledge bearers about plants and working on this new project that'll go, uh, I'll probably take it public and live in 2018 called the Archive of Healing Ritual and Transformation. Some of the advisory board members that I've already collected are from native communities and they're helping me understand things like intellectual property rights and what should and not should be said about their healing practices. Um, they're helping me with my own garden in the back and mm. using you know plants. Um, and so I don't have, I would say, uh, ongoing into institutional review board approved working relationships with the native community right now. And it's important for me to be up, upfront and honest about that. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, particularly as communities are heterogeneous, um, and are not monolithic. And it's so important for folks that are doing work as Absolutely. outsiders with other groups to be able to recognize the complexity of that, that of course, Absolutely. that's going to be an issue, right? And this is a really key component is because all the time you hear graduate students and undergraduates and well-meaning people say, oh, I'm working with the Navajo. The Navajo? Like, tell me the more about The largest land-holding native community in the United States, spread uh -huh. out across four states, <laughs> U.S. states, uh -huh. with, uh, with, you know, something like three dozen chapter houses that each one controls its research practice. You're working with the Navajo. Okay. Right. I'm saying it's not possible because I definitely know people who work with, you know, the tribal council. But even then, what's that statement saying? You're working with people like maybe eight or 13 people who approved you and that council's changing in two years. Like mm -hmm. it's a very complex thing, but ethically I know what I'm doing and I can't rightfully say I work with the UMA right now. Mm -hmm. I have families who are upset that I don't come down as much anymore. I have, you know, obviously individuals, elders, teenagers, people in their twenties who thought my work on UMA sexuality was really important because they're members of LGBT communities and they really wanted me to continue that path. But I'm working in a political context right now in which it would be very easy for someone who didn't like me or my work to come after me and say, you're not working with the tribe's official permission. And because of that, you're working unethically. And so we've seen people, particularly some colleagues at my own university who really had their careers damaged because other native people have come after them for not working with the tribal council on the research that they're doing. And let's just say, I understand both positions. Mm -hmm. oh, that's so real. I appreciate your highlighting that nuance. Yeah. Uh, so out of respect for your time, we are just about coming to a close, but there's one last question that I just have to ask you. I sure. saw on your website that you teach a class at UCLA uh, that is titled Aliens, Psychics, and Ghosts. And I'm <laughs> so very curious to know a little bit more about that class. Could you share with us a bit about what the sort of journey of learning and unlearning is that you're curating in that space? Sure. I, I... I love that class. I've been teaching it since 2005. It has a, a attendance of 120 and a wait list of over 300 people who want to be in it every year. It's mostly students from the sciences, what we would call the STEM disciplines, because 
Um, they they want a college credit for something that has them really querying and asking bigger questions about things like reality. But it obviously includes things like conspiracy theory, um, claims of sexual abuse. Um, what is the relationship between someone's claims for truth and whether that's true for you just because someone else claims it? Um, but at its heart, you asked me to sort of pull out what what is the one thread. I will have to say it's really a critique of objectivity. It's a critique of objectivism as it's worked in the sciences. We attempt to understand the scientific method very closely, and then we look at how the scientific method leaves certain questions off the table because they seemingly can't be duplicated in research practices. So for example, the stuff that um, happens on the level of the mind or consciousness has been so rarely attempted to be understood because of that debate that Descartes lost. And because of it, it affects what we think of as health. Mm -hmm. what it affects what we think of as human relations and human relations with non-humans. It affects um, our notion of what happens before we're born and after we die. Um, and I think that if I go around the room with 120 students, I say, okay, now who, 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 of, you, who of you here have had you know, a presence in your room. Who of you have had a premonition of something that happens? Who of you have thought of someone and then that person called? And then you go around the room and realize like 90% of people have had these sort of things happen in their life and yet there's absolutely no scholarship or academic literature that they can rely on for that. Why? Why would something that's so, and perhaps a component of living and breathing be not at all attempted to be understood? And the result of that query is again kind of what was at the at, at risk here when with that very first article you asked me to speak about this focus on objects and object oriented thinking mm -hmm. right yeah what a beautiful way to come full circle i really appreciate all of those insights that you've shared uh is there anything else that you would want to share or elaborate upon based upon all of the topics that we've gotten into so far uh well the one thing i would say is that the piece that you started off with, um, Indian, is the title, Inside Frequencies, um, has a very colloquial, um, perhaps conversational tone to it. And if anyone was very interested in exploring those issues further, then I would direct them to the piece called Spirituality, which is in that Fred Hoxie book. Um, and they could find that and all my essays at www.davidshorter.com, which I know sounds incredibly corporate and stuff like that. <laughs> the only reason that exists is as a faculty member who also does consulting with media. It's useful to have one website that one can change on any given time and then just rede redirect everything there. So if anyone goes there, they can go to the link at the top called Essays, and they'll be able to see everything I've written for both popular outlets as well as for academic outlets. Great. Uh, well, thank you so much for everything that you've shared and for your time. I'm sincerely appreciative of it. Thank you so much. This is a really great avenue. I'm so glad that you've made this possible for people. Thank you kindly. That's all for today's episode of Feral Visions. Now, I know that unlearning that spirit-matter dichotomy may be ambitious for some of you who have bought into it for your whole life. Depending upon the theological context in which you were socialized, that whole sacred, profane polarity may be central to your storytelling about the world. If so, I hope my dialogue with Dr. Shorter offered some cultural vocabulary to begin to work through this colonial binary. Perhaps it has you reflecting on how you've perceived yourself and your cultural practices and other folks and their cultural and place-based practices. Maybe you've condensed the totality of your being and that of others 
into these limiting categories based on external pressure to do so so far in life. Well, guess what, beloved? Like Arundhati Roy reminds us, we don't have to simplify what's complex. Feel free to share your musings around this in the comment section below. If you'd like to learn more about the topics that Dr. Shorter and I discussed, check out liberationspring.com for our winter 2018 class titled Our Spirits, Ourselves. All the course materials are available for free on the site, and you're welcome to apply for our community class from anywhere in the world. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyaya, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil. Deceitful and coward, people in power. Our power to the people is the hour of the peaceful. Freedom.